This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Today's sermon, from our 2017 Ash Wednesday service, is by Canon Stephen Gautier. One of my keenest childhood memories involves early grade school, when I came out of the eye doctor's offices with my first pair of glasses. What I remember it was in our local downtown, and it was just before Christmas, maybe a week or two before Christmas. It was already dark, but my appointment was at the end of the day. And the street was all decorated with Christmas lights and the like. And why I remember that so much, even now, is that when I came out of the office, I saw something I'd never seen before in my life. I saw individual Christmas lights. No, my li- I had seen everything like a blur. I could see, but I saw things blurry. I saw individual. I thought it was amazing to see individual lights on the on the on the, the strings. And maybe that's why I've always been especially fond of a strange gospel story. We have it printed in your bulletin here. It's about a blind man who is actually healed in a two-step process. The first part of the healing, he recovers his sight, but he doesn't see clearly. It takes a second laying on of hands for him to actually recover his full sight. So I think that story invites us to two important questions as we begin our Lenten journey. One is, are we actually seeing, not just seeing, but seeing clearly in our spiritual lives? And what can we do by God's grace this Lent to see even more clearly? So what is that story of the blind men of Bethsaida? You have it there in the bulletin. It's only three verses, so I'm going to read it to you. I love the story. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on him again. And he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Well, this leads to the question, why didn't Jesus heal him all at once? Sometimes this is scandalized Christians. How can we explain that? Um, Jesus is the all-powerful Son of God. He didn't need two tries to get it right. We know that's the case. And the text gives us no suggestion there's anything lacking in the man's faith. We say nothing about the man except that he's cured. So why does it take two laying on of hands to, so he can see clearly? Well, actually, if you read the text of Mark, we find out it's a visual. It's basically a visual parable to understand what's going to follow right after that. One of the most important scenes in the New Testament occurs right then, and we might misunderstand it without that image of the man at first who saw but it was only later that he saw clearly. And the story has to do with the famous confession of Peter. This is halfway through the Gospel of Mark, so the, the great dynamic halfway point. And Jesus asked his disciples, okay, who do people say that I am? You know, what's, what's the word going around? They say, well, some people think you're Elijah. Some people think that John the Baptist is risen from then. You're John the Baptist. Some people think you're one of the other prophets. Okay, who do you say that I am? And that's where Peter came up with a remarkable profession of faith. He says, you're the Christ. Straightforward, you are the Christ. The anointed one, the Messiah of Israel, that's you. You are the Christ. But that's not the end of the story. Now that he's acknowledged Jesus, Jesus 
opens up to him what's going to happen to the apostles. He says, you know, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. And the response of Peter, he says, he actually scolded Jesus, he rebuked him. Rebuked Jesus. So what's the point in the story? He just said, certainly it's uncute, you're the Christ. And when Jesus talks about what the Christ is going to do, he rebukes him. Well, it means what we have with Peter at this point in his faith, his faith will grow. He's prepared to accept the victorious king of Israel. He's ready for that. That's Jesus. But he's not prepared to accept the suffering servant. He can accept the one. He can't accept the other. He's like the blind man who could see, but he couldn't see clearly yet. Peter fails to see that the Jesus of Easter is the Jesus of Good Friday. They cannot be separated. One goes with the other. That is who Jesus, that's who the Messiah is. Well, Jesus doesn't stop there. He actually goes on to tell us that, that, sto that this story, what's going on here, involves everyone in this room today, in this place. Everyone. He applies the story. He said, no, no, this isn't just about me and about Peter. This is about everyone. He goes on and he says, calling the crowd to him, to emphasize this wasn't just the apostles, calling the crowd to him and his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. Jesus is saying, He's not looking for admirers, he's looking for followers. That his story is our story. That we have to die to self to be born again. And that the only way, the cross is the way of life. There is no other way but the way of the cross. So sometimes we may find ourselves in the position of saying we want to follow Jesus, then we're seeing, that's moving from blindness to sight but we still are resisting taking up the cross. We're not into that part exactly. We're really into the part of accepting the promises. We're there, we can see, but we really haven't accepted bearing the cross. We resist taking up, we, we are not seeing clearly yet. We're not really seeing clearly yet unless we get ready to claim that we are not really ready to claim our own personal Easter until we're willing to, to accept our own personal Good Friday. They can't be separated. So life is a really good time to sort of to take concrete steps to ask ourselves, how is our vision, sort of a vision test? Do we see clearly, and if not, how can we improve it? Well, in the Hebrew Scriptures, we're told that there are three classic ways that we can be brought closer to God, tools God has given us that he makes himself closer to us. Jesus talks about them in the Gospel tonight. We're talking about prayer, fasting and almsgiving. Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. They come to us from the Hebrew Scriptures, and Jesus said that's exactly right. Not only does Jesus approve these, he says he assumes we're doing all three. It's not like we choose one that works for us. He assumes we pray. He assumes we give alms. He assumes we fast. So at the beginning of Lent, the church uses this gospel to remind us that there's no better way to make a good Lent. Or to put it in the terms of the story we had today with the blind man, 
Jesus will take the spittle of those exercises of our prayer, of our, our almsgiving, of our fasting. He'll take that spittle and then put on the hands of his grace and allow us to see clearly. Now let's look at each of those three, three ways that the scriptures teach us. First of all, let's talk about fasting. That's the first thing people think of with Lent, right? Giving up things. Fasting. And what is fasting? It's really an exercise in self-denial. Now, we associate it principally in the scriptures with food, but it can be other things. For example, it can be um, anything that has a serious pull on our life. For example, younger people might be social media, for example. It could be the time we spend on a certain hobby or something. Things that somehow are really taking traction in our lives. Now, why we traditionally associate it with food is a powerful image. You know, in John's Gospel, one of the main themes is that Jesus' whole desire, his whole life goal is to do the Father's will. So when he tries to come with a way to describe it, how do I describe how much I want to do the Father's will, what does he say? He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, to accomplish his work. So we knew that there's nothing more basic than food. It's the primary need. It's as basic as it gets. So that's what Jesus used to describe it with the Father. So taking into that account, let's look at three purposes of fasting. The first purpose is basically, it's a reality check. You see, we talk about here, the Old Testament talks about things that humbling ourselves. Fasting is part of humbling ourselves before the Lord, but I think we misunderstand the word humble. The word humble, like we know in the English word, comes from the Latin word humus, it means ground. And it really means being level-headed, having our two feet on the ground, being realistic about the way things really are. This came to me as I had the joy of just last week seeing my first grandson, first grandchild at all. And to him, there simply is nothing more vital or important in the whole universe than his eating and his needs. There simply is nothing else. His needs are just all there is. Mom, dad, anyone else. This is inconsequential. My needs. So the humility that we have with fasting is it teaches us that there's something, something more important than even our profoundest real need. Food is a real need, but there's something even more profound than our deepest need. That's an important thing to remember. The second purpose of fasting is it breaks the pattern of immediate self-gratification. We want something, therefore we need to have it, and we need to have it now. This is the core of selfishness. This is the actual root of selfishness, immediate gratification. And it's really hard for us more than, I think, any age, because we live in a consumer society where every voice around us tells us that's the proper response is I have a need to have it met and to have it met yesterday. My needs need to be met and met immediately. So he said, okay, the first purpose of fasting is to remind us there's something more important than even our deepest need, our deepest desire. Second, to remind ourselves that to break that pattern of just because I have a need or desire that that means it has to be satisfied and satisfied right now. But the third is the most important. It actually opens up space for God. You know, the, when you get older, trust me from the front lines, is that it gets very hard to hear people when there's background noise. They're speaking, and you can hear them, but you can't hear them, right? Before all the noise, you can't hear them. 
And that often happens with the din in our life. Remember an episode with Elijah the prophet in the Old Testament? God's going to reveal himself to Elijah. And we talk about the, the great earthquake. We talk about God reveals himself in a still, small voice. And I wonder, it seems to me God was probably always speaking. It was just the first time Elijah could hear. And that's the story in our life. We're waiting is God is speaking there, but there are things in our lives that have turned up the noise level that we honestly can't hear anymore. And Lent is basically about fasting. It's about turning down that volume by breaking that immediate contact of, of need and gratification. So we say the first of these three paths are fasting. Fasting is, again, it humbles us by showing us there's something more important than our needs. It shows us that breaking the pattern of immediately getting what we desire, which is the key of all selfishness comes from that. We think we're generous if we get our own and then have leftovers for others. I take care of myself. It's sort of like the new, and the, an airplane where they tell you, put on the mask on yourself first, then help people around you. There's a good reason for that, I know, but the point is it's sort of how we feel about things. <laughs> and third, again, it opens up that space. You know what I love the image of that is in the old, the old Testament, what's the image? of God, but we have the tabernacle in the desert, when we have the, uh, the temple, is it's really an empty space. There's not really much in the temple. People were shocked at how little there was in there. Uh, you know, when the Romans came, temples normally were full of stuff. And outside of the ark, it was pretty much empty. Because remember, it symbolically showed that God filled the temple with that crowd, that cloud. And so fasting can actually allows that space, that now allows that space for God to come in. The second thing we have is almsgiving, basically self-giving. We can define that as taking action to meet the needs of others. I love how Mother Teresa put it. She said, love has to be put into action. It has to. It's not love, and it's potential love. Love only becomes love when we do something about it. Love has to be put into action. Now, traditionally, we think of what we give is we give money. Maybe we give uh, goods to the poor. That's true. But there are other forms of giving that are just as important, self-giving. Our time, our attention, our emotional support, those are real giving. And they're really necessary. That's part of, of almsgiving. It's interesting, Mother Teresa, when she first came to the United States, expanding her ministry, they thought, well, compared to India, what kind of poverty is there in, the rich, in a rich country like the United States? And she said, she found the poverty in the rich country, she said, so much deeper that so many people were isolated, alienated, cast over. Oh, they had plenty to eat, they had a roof over the head, but they had just been abandoned by the society around them. So to meet those needs, our time, our attention, and support. So what are the purposes of almsgiving? Well, as the rabbis always remind us, it's obvious in Hebrew, the word for to give alms is to do justice. It's to do justice. It's reminding us that what we have is for the service of everyone. You know, Jesus, had, when he talks to the apostles, has a saying, I love, he says, you know, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? He says, blessed is that servant when his master comes and finds him doing so. God has given us our various gifts, all those things, and he's given them to us for service. And truly it can be said of us, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. It's justice. We're stewards of, our, of the gifts we've been given. But there are two spiritual benefits. I, 
emphasize to you this Lent with almsgiving, self-giving. First of all, it's a wonder, it's not a burden, it's a wonderful opportunity. I've got to tell you, when I was young and I fell in love, I fell in love with my wife. And it's a crazy infatuation uh, phase of love. And I really welcomed opportunities to do really difficult, unpleasant things to show how much I loved her. Doing crazy stuff. Like going to pick her up at the airport in the middle of the night or something, you know, when there's, oh no, I, I insist on doing this. And I would examine, oh no, it has to be me. I loved, I welcomed those opportunities. I wanted to do something to show her how I felt. Well, we say we love Jesus, you know, if there's only something we could do for Jesus, well, Jesus says there is. Remember that story in, in Matthew 25, where he says, you know, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I didn't have any clothes, you gave me clothes. Look at exactly what he says at the end, it's very important. He says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Not for me, not because I want... To me, what we do for others is serving Jesus himself. That's profound. So the opportunity of service is an opportunity to actually give Jesus something. Jesus in person, to do it for him. And when we look at things that way, our attitude towards the people who benefit changes entirely. No longer the people who are sort of a nuisance, uh, something in the way, something we have to do. We honor them because we see Jesus. That's whom we see. So it gives us the opportunities to serve God in the flesh. If we want to serve Jesus in person, he's all around us. We just have eye, need to have eyes to see. There's loneliness, there's need everywhere. The second, it's an invitation into, into the full, full fulfillment of our, our status as sons and daughters. We're called to be sons and daughters of God. And you know something, again, I'm going to talk, I promise it'll be the last baby story tonight, is when we're around there, everyone's asking, who does he look like? Right? You know, does he look like, you know, his mother, his father, does he look at like his grandfather? Who does he look like? So don't we're children of God, you know, we should look like God. No, seriously, we'll have the family resemblance. It's unmistakable. So what does Jesus tell us the family resemblance of God is? What does it look like to look like God? He tells us. He says in Luke's great sermon, he says, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God is a shameless giver. Think about it. God existed when there was nothing else. The only reason there is anything else is because that's just who God is. He gives. He cannot help himself. That is God. He is a supreme giver with no thought of receiving anything, of giving with no thought of reward. So to be a son and daughter of God is to be a giver like God. It's an opportunity to really have that family resemblance. Expecting nothing returns, then you'll be sons of the Most High. The third road that we have from the, from the Hebrew Scriptures is prayer. And I think one of the reasons we sometimes are, are ambivalent about prayer is we don't really understand that prayer is, has always been defined as the lifting of the mind and heart to God. So what we do here and you know, we, we are conscious about it, that's only a piece of prayer. It's like, again, a good marriage. In marriage there are times you have incredible conversations with your spouse. A lot of other precious times you're just happy because they're around. 
You're just doing what you do, but it's different because they're there. You're conscious of that presence. Prayer is basically inviting God to share our life. You know, as a parent of adult children, I've got to tell you, one of the great joys is all you do is you want to be part of their life. I love when one of my boys calls me and says, Dad, you've you got to hear this. I'm part of their life. That's what God bring God's, brings God joy. So prayer is really just those things bringing God into our lives. Now, why is prayer so important? Well, it's critical because we have to change. Change is essential for any of this. Well, there's only one way we can change. You knew it was coming. My favorite verse in the entire New Testament is 2 Corinthians 3.18. And the image it has, it says, remember Moses when he went to the mountain, when he saw God? What happened when he came back? His face glowed from seeing God. He was different simply by being with God. He was changed in the process. So Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, it's like that as we look at the image of Jesus, we change and become like him. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. Fasting and almsgiving won't change anything of themselves, but they will with prayer. It's only when we're looking at Jesus as we're doing these things that that happens. Otherwise, actually, what can happen with fasting and prayer, instead of focusing on God, we can actually be even more focused on ourselves. We can make it like a personal Olympics of how well I fast. Of, like the, remember the, the Pharisee who said, I give twice a week. You know, I, 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 give, I give tenth of all I have. I fast twice a week. It can take the focus off God. Prayer is the thing that all change, the power we need for anything, grace is always, will happen when we look at God. That's when it happens. So in conclusion today, we're going to have the imposition of ashes right, right after, uh, after this, this sermon. And it's reminding us of two separate spiritualities, and we need to remember both of them as we enter land. The first is we say, you are dust, and to dust you will return. It's reminding us that until our Lord returns, we can expect that we will die. That is what will happen. We will die. We are mortal. But there's a second, more profound meaning. It also means that we need to die to self right now. That's what we put on the ashes. We're embracing that. It's not the death just that will come. It's the death in Jesus, the death to self that we embrace even now. The fullness of that message. It's only when we embrace both, the Jesus who promised our salvation and the Jesus who invites us to join him at the cross, only then do we see clearly. So again, the church invites us to improve our vision by fasting, by the giving of our time, our treasure to serve others, by deepening of our lives in prayer. May Jesus open each of our eyes this Lent so we can see clearly, not just Jesus resurrected, but Jesus crucified, that they're one and the same. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.